I am delighted to replay one of my favorite episodes of the Soul of the Nation, featuring Sister Helen Prejean discussing activism around abolishing the death penalty. This is especially timely again now, given that inmates continue to sit on death row and the federal death penalty still stands. Sister Helen Prejean is known around the world, and she's been around the world uh, in even recent days, for her tireless work against the death penalty. She has been instrumental in sparking national dialogue on capital punishment and in shaping the Catholic Church's vigorous opposition to all executions. In 1982, Sister Helen began corresponding with Patrick Sonier, who had been sentenced to death for the murder of two teenagers. Two years later, when Patrick Sonier was put to death in the electric chair, Sister Helen was there to witness his execution. In the following months, she became spiritual advisor to another death row inmate, Robert Lee Willey, who was to meet the same fate as Sonier. After witnessing these executions, Sister Helen realized that this lethal ritual would remain unchallenged unless its secrecy was stripped away. So she sat down and wrote the amazing book entitled Dead Men Walking. That book ignited the national debate on capital punishment and spawned an Academy Award-winning movie, a play, and an opera. Sister Helen's second book, The Death of Innocence, was published in 2004, and her third book, River of Fire, My Spiritual Journey, in August 2019. Welcome, Sister Helen. Tell me how your spirit is these days. Uh, My spirit, with the Jesus and the Christ we know who came among the poor and those who mourn, is very close to Christ in the suffering of the people that I've gotten involved with, with the federal executions. I got involved with Brandon Bernard's team and with him, got to speak with him the day before he was killed. Um, So it's very mixed uh, for Christmas this year. But, you know, I'm looking up at a crucifix that's above my desk, uh, always there, That that's where Jesus always is. And I do not know how to describe, but there is in God's amazing grace, a joy that cannot be overtaken. And that's in me too. Being that it's this Christmas season, moving out of Advent, a time of anxious anticipation and waiting for people on death row awaiting their execution dates, it's such a painful time. And for many of us, We celebrate the arrival of the baby Jesus. In the end, the baby born in the manger was executed by the government. How do you respond to those who feel a discordant tension between life and death, joy and sorrow in this Christmas time of year? Well, I have been so blooming, protected, and uh, resourced and privileged in my life that to get close to the suffering ones is a great grace for me. And, uh, but there is, it's unspeakable to be alive, to be conscious, uh, like Brandon Bernard, to have used the rest of your life after a terrible crime where two people were killed, to totally 
be redeemed, to be restored, to love everybody around him. I never met anyone more poised going to their death than I did this young man, Brandon, who had been in prison 20 years. Even the, the guards, everybody, he, he, they all loved him because he treated everybody with respect. So kind of embodied in him. We're going to have his memorial service tomorrow, uh, distance, of course. You know, it'll be by uh, streaming. But uh, he was, it was incredible to meet him. And, you know, we've so romanticized the birth of Jesus. Uh, I, and I have a, a, just a great Christmas greeting that I've used for years. It really embodies just what we're talking about. And it goes like this. It's by Howard Thurman. Uh, when the song of the angels is silent, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are again tending their sheep, when the manger is darkened and still, the work of Christmas begins. To find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among people, to befriend the lo lonely, to release the prisoner, to make music in the heart. And there it is. What a way to begin with Howard Thurman in this Christmas season about what it really means. How did How Howard Thurman, how did he break through to you and that he was such a wonderful mystic and contemplative and, and yet he... Uh, he shaped the whole civil rights movement, Dr. King, especially. Um, so how, how are Thurman breaks through at Christmas? How did that happen for you? You know what? I do not know. The mysteries of God's providence where a little parachute came down in the sky one day and it had this Christmas greeting from Howard Thurman. And I immediately got it copied and put it on a nice piece of paper and I've been sending it ever since. But you know a lot about him. You know more about him than I do. So he helped the civil rights um, active in that, huh? Yeah, his uh, uh, his Jesus book King carried around with him every time he he traveled. Uh, Jesus and the disinherited, like you're speaking of. So, how does your advocacy work against the death penalty? How's it rooted so deeply in your Catholic faith? Because it's rooted in, in Jesus, and it's rooted in justice. Um, it's the very opposite of the gospel of Jesus, you know, who said we can't even call anybody a fool or, or let the sun set on our anger toward anyone, much less to return hate for hate and, and life for life, killing for killing. That's not Jesus. Poor Jesus. I mean... You know, what's happened to Jesus and what politics has done to religious religion has just commandeered it and taken it over. So I'm just very graced to be awake. See, my book, River of Fire, talked about the grace of waking up that the gospel of Jesus was to be among the poor and to work for justice. I was 40 years old in my life before I woke up to that. And I have to tell you this on behalf of sojourners. That when I did wake up, I moved into an African-American uh, neighborhood, worked at a place called Hope House, was surrounded then with wonderful mentors and teachers, with human rights people, with lawyers, with 
compassionate people working for the people in the neighborhood, with the prisoners, with everybody. And, and that's when I first saw this magazine called Sojourners. And so I'm Catholic, right? And so if you talk to me about evangelical religion, my image of that would be people to get, you know, kind of in a big tent and rah, rah, Jesus. <laughs> but it was rooted in justice. And I would read this magazine, just memorize this magazine. I would sip this magazine like a liqueur. Each one of the words just made so much sense to me because I was connecting real life and suffering people and systemic racism. And here it was being rooted in scripture and in the words of Jesus. And it was very, very exciting for me to make this connection. So Sojourners was a big part of my formation. Well, that warms my heart. That warms my heart so deeply because of all your work and all you've done for so long now. While state executions have dramatically decreased and even the public consciousness has largely opposed the death penalty, in the past 35 years, the Trump administration has executed and is planning to execute more people from July 2020 to January 2021 than in the past 17 years. So in a recent Washington Post op-ed, you wrote this, each of the people awaiting death on Trump's watch is a person, one whose life story cries out for mercy. Are we ready for the government to kill those people in our names? Say more about that, especially how it relates to inmates with mental health challenges, veteran status, facing the systemic racism of the system, inadequate legal representation, addiction, or so many numerous other factors. And how is the pandemic impacting executions? Okay, so first of all, just to say what this has highlighted the fact that for 17 years there were no federal executions, then along comes Trump with the Attorney General William Barr, and they start killing people. And they are killing people because they can. Because the, the last vestige of the divine right of kings, as it's called, has been given over to these individuals. It also highlights a fundamental flaw in the way the Supreme Court set out to restore the death penalty. They, the Supreme Court set up as the criteria for who would be executed in this modern era of, of executions, not ordinary murderers, not your garden variety murders, only for the worst of the worst. And nobody knows what that means. Who could possibly know what that means? Any human being who's killed you lose a universe, unique and irreplaceable. That's the worst of the worst. Every one lost of its own kind. And then coupled with an impossible criteria that's going to be a subjective interpretation and then left up to the discretion of prosecutors to go for death or not. We And you can see this so clearly with William Barr as the attorney general. If he does not seek the death of all those people, they do not die. And for 17 years, the attorney general did not seek the death of people, and they are alive. So that puts that divine life-death power in the hands of faulty, partially seeing, ignorant, politically driven, 
frail, wounded human beings where nobody can handle it. And if you want to see it writ large and the fault of where it is from the beginning, we can see it now. What's ironical, or depending on what eyes we have to see, I see in it a, a, a great, well, in the way God's providence rising in history, right at the time when the Catholic Church reached a moral evolution to be able to state that under no conditions can state execute. In 2018 was the first time we had morally evolved enough. This is 1,600 years of dialogue in the Catholic Church where we reached a point of saying under no conditions, no matter how grave the crime, you cannot entrust over to government this power over human life to execute their citizens. We just reached that right as Trump rises to the fore and uses his power right and left to kill people. So it's a very teachable moment in a way. Well, you, I think you're a part of that. So this killing spree that you call unprecedented in American history is occurring. So what do you think this uh, sitting president will do to the future of the death penalty? Do you think we might see more federal executions in, in the years ahead? Or will this be a point, will this be a teachable moment for us, sister? How could this be something that makes us all as clear as that 2018 statement was by the Catholic Church? Yeah. Well, you see, the way consciousness rises, Jesus talked about you have wheat and weeds that come up together always. And our consciousness is always mixed. And we have these waves in history. I mean, I have no doubt now looking closely at the death penalty and going out to the American public for these 30 years to talk to them, to tell them stories, to bring them close, to just show them how the death penalty is very, very selective. It's only poor people. Who are the worst of the worst? Only poor people and overwhelmingly 80% people who kill white people, who have white victims. And people don't know that, see, but as people are educated, what I've found is that most people, they're not bent on having the government execute people. They were made to be afraid. And this was the rhetoric, the political rhetoric of the 80s. These people are so evil in their character and by the nature of what they have done. The only way we can be safe from them is to execute them. You can't put them in prison. They'll kill other inmates and guards because they just so distilled in people, in their character, this huge judgment that they were unchangeable, that they were killers, they would remain killers. And people were made to be afraid. And so they bought into it and they didn't have any way of getting information. And the other thing is, when I walked out of that execution chamber in the early morning hours of April 5th, 1984, where I had watched a man be electrocuted to death by the state. It was in the dark. I remember Jim coming out of the gate of the prison. Uh, I vomited. I threw up. I'd never watched a protocol of such intentional death step by step. And I remember thinking very clearly, my mission actually was born that very night, that early morning. The people are never going to get close to this. It's a secret ritual. There have been two court cases to, to try to make 
executions public and they've both been defeated. And I had been brought in as a witness. And so I had a moral imperative then as a witness to go out and bring the people close to tell the story. And that's why I wrote Dead Man Walking. And my dialogue with my church, we had a terrible statistic in the 80s that it was a poll that showed the more people went to church, the more they believed in the death penalty. And it was that way of interpreting the crucifixion of Jesus. This just happened last year in Wyoming. Wyoming legislature came very close to repealing the death penalty. It came down to one senator and she said, no, I'm not going to vote to repeal the death penalty. If Jesus hadn't been crucified by the Romans, we wouldn't be saved from our sins. So what is underneath that is this witness test of a God who demands wrath, who demands the pound of flesh and a life for a life. It's a total misconstruing of what the crucifixion of Jesus means. It also says a lot when people say they believe in the death penalty. Most people don't have anybody, or at least among privileged people, don't have anybody in prison and don't begin to know what the death, what it's like and what it really means. And only the most vulnerable are the ones chosen for death. I want people to hear what you just said, which you say again and again, but it's so powerful. You said that everyone sentenced to death in the United States is poor and how the death penalty is intertwined with racism and poverty. Say more about You've seen that now for 30 years. Say more about that. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you want to see systemic racism at work, that you see that what is it that eight out of 10 white victims is when the death penalty is sought. Whereas people of color in this country are close to 50% of homicide victims. And a lot of the crime is, is black on black crime. But if you don't care and you don't value the life of a person, then you're not outraged by their death. When I lived in the St. Thomas projects in New Orleans, Virginia Carr, she had two sons killed within six months. And there was not even an investigation by the DA's office into the death of her, of her sons. If a life is negligible, a death is negligible. And so if you want to see racism writ large, look at who gets the ultimate penalty and look when you really break it down. What worst of the worst means is who do you kill and whose life is valued? And then the way poverty, the other fault line that's built into when the Supreme Court put the death penalty back, along with giving an impossible criteria, giving discretion over to prosecutors. Isn't it interesting that in the former slave states, what was part of the Confederacy, over 70% of actual executions of the 1,500 plus executions have gone on in the former slave states. And all poor people, and what the Supreme Court didn't allow for. So you're supposed to have all these constitutional rights. You're supposed to have due process. You're supposed to have a jury of your peers. You're supposed to have a defense attorney at your side. But if you don't give resources over for a person to be able to have a decent lawyer by their side, states, like especially in the Deep South, had to scrabble to get funds, 
um, in in New Orleans and in Louisiana, it was fines from traffic tickets that would fund the public defenders. So having a good lawyer by yourself, by your side to actualize your rights in the Constitution is extremely important. It's like having a good doctor when you got COVID. And so that's why poor people are always going to be the ones who are brought in and dragged in in this net. And not having, I didn't know, see, in Dead Man Walking, I just talked about the importance of a lawyer. Did you know this? That if your lawyer during the trial for your life does not raise a formal objection when bad things happen, for example, you're a black man and you see an all-white jury being seated to be the jury of your peers, and your lawyer does not raise a formal objection, it doesn't get in the transcript, and no appeals court can look at it. That's what happened to Dobie Gillis-Williams. He's the first story in Death of Innocence. Without a lawyer at your side, constitutional rights are just words written into a document. It's compelling the way you talk about bringing this close. Uh, m- most people have never seen or experienced an execution person, of course, and you have been witness to, to so many. What stays with you? about the executions and why do you want people to know about them to keep get out of the secrecy that you talked about how are you able to remain hopeful after witnessing such cruelty well the hope is in the people and i have to say it's getting out of that execution chamber that night in the dark i remember thinking very clearly the american people are good people they're they're buying into this only because they don't really know what's going on if we bring them close. And my hope has been borne out in the people and we can see them putting the death penalty down. But here, here's the journey that we have to make. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it right now into the d- dialogue I had with Pope John Paul because it directly bears on this. I said to him when I had a chance to dialogue with him, I said, Your Holiness, I meet a lot of Catholics, a lot of people who say they're pro-life, but I find they say they're pro-life, but they're for the death penalty. And I think what they mean when they say pro-life is they're pro-innocent life. They're all for standing up for innocent life, which is right. I don't oppose that. But they draw a line when people have done a terrible thing and they've done a crime. And So the journey for the death penalty to see it as a moral issue and a pro-life, the inviolable dignity of a person who did a terrible crime. The first part of the journey is to stand in outrage that an innocent person has been killed, to feel the outrage. The outrage is ethical. A human life has been taken, sometimes in terrible ways. Then the journey is to go from that point and then to go to look and watch as the state renders a person defensive, totally defensive, and then intentionally kills them. And that was the point I made to the Pope. So I said, pro-life, does the Catholic Church only uphold the dignity of innocent life? What about the guilty? And when I'm walking with a human being who's about to be killed, he's shackled hand and foot, He's surrounded by six guards, and I'm going to walk with him as they take him to the electric chair. And he turns around toward me and says, Sister, please pray God holds up 
my legs. And that's when I said, Your Holiness, where is the dignity in rendering a human being defenseless and killing them? We have a way to protect society because we have prisons now. Can you help our church see the inviolable dignity of all life, even of the guilty? And I wasn't the only one in the dialogue. Many, many people. That's the thing of community. The people of God, it's the community where the consciousness rises up. It's almost like bubbles in a pot when the water boils. And we had come to a point that then the Pope, Pope, this was John Paul before Francis, who in St. Louis for the first time in 1999 said, put the death penalty in with the other pro-life issues. And then said, the death penalty is cruel and unnecessary. He acknowledged the cruelty or torture that our Supreme Court is not there yet. Cruelty or torture and extreme mental or physical assault on someone rendered defenseless as it has been defined by the UN Convention on Torture. And then he added, this is Pope John Paul in St. Louis, 1999, even those among us who have done a terrible crime have a dignity as a human person that must not be taken from them. And and then Francis built on that, and that led to the statement in 2018. My hope is the people. The people are not bent on violence. They were made to be afraid, and they don't have any information. Educate the people, and they get it because their hearts are good. Also, what has really impacted the consciousness of the country is we have made so many mistakes. There have been 172 wrongfully convicted people who were put on the road, like Glenn Ford in Louisiana, 30 years, 172. Of the 1,500 plus people executed who've been gassed, shot, electrocuted, lethally injected, all hidden from the public's eyes, For every nine executions in this country, one person has had to be freed because they were actually innocent. One in nine. Can you imagine booking that airline ticket where they say, now, before you buy this ticket, we got to tell you, you got a one in nine chance. You're going to make it. And we've seen the American people have seen the mistakes. And so we're at another point where we, we are in practice beginning to really shut the death penalty down. Uh, There are only two counties in the United States where prosecutors are actively seeking death because if prosecutors don't seek it, it doesn't happen. So this is a journey. You call this a journey. I like that a lot that the Pope finally took and your church took, and you've been on this journey for these 30 years. Now you tried to contact attorney general Barr about the recent executions. Has he responded? Uh, Or what actions do you recommend listeners take to stop these executions? Has he responded to you? No, he has not. Uh, And I'm not surprised at that, although you always want to hold out the hope. I mean, we still have these three human beings who are going to be killed, two of whom have COVID, by the way. The COVID outbreak at, at Terre Haute is terrible because people are so crowded. There are hundreds of people involved in these federal executions that crowd into these buildings and then come in and fill the town of Terre Haute. All these people coming into town for these executions, it's a huge super spreader. Uh, and we have three human beings, one of whom 
it just breaks your heart. Is Lisa Montgomery, who was tortured and raped her whole life and then did a terrible crime. And now she is scheduled to be executed herself to kill a woman, haven't killed a woman in 70 years. So we still have these three human beings. And if you want to look at how capricious it is, how whimsical it is, I mean, for her, Lisa Montgomery, just eight days before Biden takes over as president, and he's not going to kill anybody. He said it. He said he's against these executions. He can do a moratorium right away. The cruelty of it, that here, if she could just last eight days longer, her life could be saved. That's January 12th, 2021, where Lisa Montgomery is facing her execution. Then January 14th, Corey Johnson is facing the same. January 15th, Dustin Higgs is facing the same. Have you been in touch with the Biden-Harris transition team about this? And do you expect, are you confident this will end with them? Yeah, I don't need to be in touch with them. They're already conscious and they're doing a good work. They don't need me in there because they're there. This is the first time that we ever had a presidential campaign where every single Democratic candidate said they're against the death penalty. Obama wasn't. Obama let, and boy, once you have a loophole, then prosecutors can use the heck out of that loophole. And so Obama in principle was not principally opposed to it. But this is a first. As consciousness rises in the people, then finally it's the leaders that are changed by the people. The Supreme Court one day will change when the people's consciousness has changed enough. The Supreme Court has a terrible record on racism. I mean, they have, their decisions on race have been horrible. Only when there's enough consciousness in the people. And I love it that Vatican II defined church believers as the people of God. Mm-hmm. Not merely the bishops and the leaders. Right, it's the right. people. Well, you know that. And you're saying, as you said, you're saying today that it's people who make these decisions. Leaders make these decisions. The Trumps and the Bars, Bidens and the Harrises. So people can get them to change their decisions. In your book, River of Fire, you write, in a democracy like the United States, there's no such thing as being apolitical. If we sit back and do nothing, leaving all the policy making to others, that is in fact a position of support for the status quo, which is a very political stance to take. So expand on how, how, how people remaining apolitical in the face of so much injustice, is in fact to be political. Yeah, well, you see, that was a big part of my waking up because I used to say, well, you know, I'm a Catholic nun. I pray for people. I do retreats. And I thought if I prayed to God for the suffering of poor people, it was God's job to comfort the poor and the suffering. And uh, and I'd just make statements, Jim. I'd make statements like, well, I'm spiritual. I'm apolitical. I'm above all that messy political stuff. <laughs> I just pray for people. This is where Sojourners really helped me. You got to know this uh, because you ground justice then in suffering people. And, and then you go, well, where am I in it? And I had a true conversion experience of coming to understand the gospel of Jesus. We went to a conference. I'm just realizing this the other day. Terre Haute, where all these executions are happening. Terre Haute. 
the girls were away for the, the women were away for the summer. And so we went as nuns to a conference and heard this great nun. I don't know if you ever met her, Sister Marie Augusta Neal. She taught New Testament and sociology at Emmanuel College in Boston for 40 years. And she talked to us about social justice and I got it. And, and I remember the line. I remember the line where everything changed because she said, Jesus preached good news to the poor. And I thought I knew what was coming next. I thought I knew, well, yeah, well, what Jesus preached good news to the poor, how every hair on their head is numbered, how God loves them like no sparrow falls from the sky. They are more loved than any sparrow. I expected it all to be language about the compassionate love of God. And she said, integral to good news to people who are poor. It's not God's will for them to be poor. That's because of human decisions. And, and those of us that want to follow the way of Jesus have to be on the side of the poor and in solidarity and roll up our sleeves and get in there with them to help them to struggle for justice. And I got it. Came home, right away began to volunteer at a place called Hope House. I had lived out in the suburbs my whole life and, <laughs> and done some good stuff. I mean, there are a lot of good people, you know, but then I go and then that's where I sat at the feet of African-American people who began to teach me. They were my teachers then. And it was like another country. All the rules were different. Watch what happened to young men with the police, which we all saw with George Floyd, saw people having to bring their sick babies to charity hospital at 11 at night. The nuns, we'd take them in the car to wait till three in the morning for an intern to see their sick child of what poverty means and what it means to be without health care, what it means to be having people come into the adult education center to get their GEDs, a dropout, a dropout in junior year in a public school and cannot read a third grade reader. I mean, and all I kept throwing me back. Why was I educated? Why was I given health care? Why was I given all these things? And it just, woke me up and African-American people became my teachers who had been my servants, Jim, when I was growing up in the Jim Crow days in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We even had a servant's quarters in the back of our house. And we had this couple, Ellen and Jesse, that worked for us. I never even knew their last names. And Ellen worked in the house with mom and Jesse worked in the yard. And mom and daddy were kind to Ellen and Jesse but never questioned the systemic racism of the Jim Crow laws and the indignity of their lives. So your conversion really changed your location, which really shaped your vocation, right? Your conversion led to a change in where you were going to live and act and listen to and be taught by, which really shaped the rest of your vocation. Exactly. It did because by being in, in, in the soil with poor people at Hope House, uh, the prison project was right around the corner from where Hope House was and coming out of the adult learning center one day. It was, it was really simple. What happened, there was a project going on. He had a clipboard, saw me. Hey, Sister Helen, you want to write somebody on death row? Sure, I can do that. I thought I was only going to be writing letters. And, uh, and then I witnessed that execution. Uh, actually, you know, it's the preface, the prelude in River of Fire. It's short. Could I read it, Jim? 
Please, please, please. That's the fire. Here's the fire of the book. And it begins with a quote from St. Bonaventure. Ask not for understanding. Ask for the fire. And it goes like this. They killed a man with fire one night. They strapped him in a wooden chair and pumped electricity through his body until he was dead. His killing was a legal act because he had killed. No religious leaders protested the killing that night, but I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. And what I saw set my soul on fire, a fire that burns in me still. Now here is an account of how I came to be in the killing chamber that night and the spiritual currents that brought me there. So what you have seen has set you on fire. <laughs> and you have said the federal death penalty system is beyond repair. So what do you think of alternatives to the carceral system, the death penalty in particular, and the deeper call to restorative justice? What kind of world do you work and pray for uh, right now in this Christmas season? Uh, what does Howard Thurman say? To befriend the lonely, to release the prisoner. We have to move away from just setting up punitive systems when crimes happen in society. We have to look at the root of why people commit crimes. What leads to, what's the soil in which this is happening? And not automatically think when people make mistakes and do a crime that the answer is to exile them from their families, separate families and punish them, which ends up in their being dehumanized instead of restored to life. And I mean, some people do it in spite of what the, the prison system does, but that's the road we got to start looking to go down. We have a wonderful governor now, uh, Governor Edwards in Louisiana. And one of the first thing he did was release prisoners. These are people in geriatric wards uh, in the prison because they've had these life sentences and there for the rest of their lives and they're sick and they have a hospice center. And so we began to release people who were, in their 70s, some of them in their 80s, and they're never going to kill anybody or hurt anybody again. I mean, they're born this out in study after study. And uh, so that's it. Release the prisoners and change the mind thinking of the first thing you got to do is punish somebody. What is the root of this? Why is there this crime? And you can't tell me that if people have a decent education and they have a decent job, and they're in there with their family and they're going along in their life. They're going to be robbing people and trying to get drugs and killing people. And those of us who are privileged know nothing but this. And so we look at them as, oh, well, those people must be evil. Or they, But look, poverty, what I learned when I was in St. Thomas, you know, the main thing poverty does, it reduces your choices down to nil. You can't change your neighborhood because you can't afford the rent in a better uh, neighborhood. You know, you can't, you don't have tuition to go to a private school. I think one of the first steps, you want to talk about the most radical step we could do in this country would be to have good public education for every citizen so that we can expand our minds and get to know our gifts and learn critical thinking and that would be accompanied by a deep spirituality of knowing our souls and the gifts that we, the divine spark in each of us and, and those two infinite sources 
of, of life, divine life in us, the search for truth. We can never be satisfied with knowing enough truth. We will always search. We want to know truth. And the other is that we want to love. We are made to love. We are wired to love. Not just those around us, but to expand our love out, to include not only the humans, but the planet itself, herself, the trees, the animals, the water, that we would love life and see that as an integral part of God. And then Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. And you say, finally, it's a matter of what does it mean to love our neighbor and who is our neighbor? Can you close us out by leading us in a prayer, sister, this Christmas season, particularly for all those who sit on death row as we speak today? You know many of them. You have been there. You have met them. You have listened to them. You have seen that life and dignity inside of them. Uh, in this Christmas season, uh, could you lead us in a prayer for all of us, but particularly for those who sit on death row even now as we as we talk together? Loving God, the source of all life, the one from whom we began and with whom we will end our lives, we hold up our brothers and sisters who have been condemned to die and sit in cells, some very close to death. May you give them, may we give them, and may they know their deep dignity that no one can take from them, their deep dignity as a son and daughter of God, that each of them is worth more than the one or more terrible acts they have done, because we are made with that transcendence, that we are all worth more than the worst thing we've ever done. May their spirits be strengthened when they wake up every morning and get a thousand signals from some that they are worth nothing more than disposable human waste. May they know that their great preciousness and how beloved they are. And may we, their brothers and sisters, who are awake and alert to the evil and the impossibility of turning over to our government this uh, amazing divine ability to decide who lives and who dies. May we work energetically, constantly, to abolish the death penalty from this country and the torture that it entails. Imagine facing, like Brandon Bernard did, he had had a spotless record, never a write-up at Terre Haute on federal death row. And on a Friday night, two guards came to his cell and he was friendly with the two guards. He would always joke with them. And he said they came to the door, but they weren't smiling, their eyes above their masks. They weren't smiling. And silently, they put the cuffs on him and walked him down the hall where the warden was waiting and had a paper on the table there and read to him the date when he was to die. We pray for Brandon, who is already gone, those who await death. May we wake up as a people, that we are not a people of death, that we are a people of life. And may we work and may we pray and may we strive and may we join in community that we may be a society and a culture of life and not death. Amen.
Thank you for joining us, Sister Helen. Thank you so much. The joy, Jim. Thank you. Thanks for your wonderful work. To hear more from Sister Helen, follow her on Twitter at Helen Prejean, and check out her latest book, River of Fire, My Spiritual Journey, from your local bookstore. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace, if you'd like. Blessings on all of you for the soul of our nation. Thank you.